2: This is the Third Coast Pocket Conference, where we push the boundaries of audio storytelling. I'm Isabel Vasquez. Here you'll find the most inspiring and critical conversations in audio from the Third Coast Conference and beyond. We're halfway through this season of sessions from the 2018 Third Coast Conference, and we've brought you some of the most thought-provoking conversations in the world of audio. But we're not done yet. You can follow along each week in Third Coast's producer news, a weekly collection of resources just for you, the producer community. To sign up, visit thirdcoastfestival.org and click on the newsletter button at the bottom of the page. Today, we're taking you to the very first night of the 2018 Third Coast Conference before any other conference sessions kick off, an event we call Late Night Provocations. I'm here with Third Coast staff members and the producers of Late Night Provocations, Emily Kennedy and Maya Goldberg-Safer. Hello. Hi. So tell us a little bit about Late Night Provocations. What are they and why do we start the entire conference off with them? Okay, so simply
3: late night provocations is a live produced show of short, provocative talks by a lineup of people from our industry who have something really urgent to say to a room of 800 people.
4: Yeah, exactly. We've been doing provocations since 2016 and we use it to kick off the strange, wonderful idea packed weekend that is the Third Coast Conference. So we want to invite in ideas that are vulnerable or
3: controversial or potentially disruptive. The things that keep producers up at night. Like, the more bold the idea, the more excited we are about the provocation. If you sort of want to puke before doing your provocation, it's probably going to be awesome. Or at least that's what we tell them before the show.
4: Okay, so who did you invite this year? This year we featured Alex Laughlin, Sam Sanders, Stan Alcorn, Jeannie Andell, and Yela Scott-Bino, Aaliyah Pabani, Stacia Brown, and Lou Olkowski. And you're even going to hear a very provocative podcast advertisement.
3: One note about the recording. We had a last-minute change of plans. Many of you know uh, that the conference was affected by the Chicago hotel strike. And because of this, late-night provocations took place in a slightly more echoey
4: venue. So, we're playing the live versions of most of our provocateurs' talks here, but we did ask a few of our provocateurs to re-record, so you can hear them just a little bit more clearly.
3: Okay, now you're going to hear the amazing lineup. We'll be back in a little bit, uh, but for now we'll just let the provocations roll. The first person up to the mic is Alex Laughlin.
5: Hi everybody, I'm Alex Laughlin. And uh, until about two weeks ago, I was a member of the BuzzFeed pod squad. Thank you. Um, We were let go. Our team was dissolved without any warning. Um, And our newsroom leadership said that the plan was to, quote, move to a production model that is more like our TV projects and hire people, quote, as needed. So. Right, boom! So obviously this was a super painful experience. Um, And immediately when people heard the news, one phrase started bouncing around the internet that has spelled the end for so many great jobs in media. Pivot to video. (laughs) But here's the thing. I actually don't think that this is a pivot to video. I think that it is a pivot to freelancers. So, what happened at BuzzFeed feels to me like part of a larger trend in media that I've been seeing for a while now. Now, before I go on, I have a very important caveat to share with you. Um, For some people, freelancing is a choice that they've made, and they are very happy with that choice. They get to work the hours they want, where they want, when they want, and without bras or makeup. That's awesome. But for a lot of people, and I'm assuming a lot of you in this room, you are not freelancers by choice, but by circumstance. Something happened that was out of your control and now you are floating adrift in the media world. This talk is for the people that are in this room who are in charge of making the hiring decisions. So, I know there are some of you in here, so this is for you. Okay, now that we've gotten the caveats out of the way, um, let's take our eyes out of our belly buttons and into the world. So, a little bit of history. In 1962, AT&T was the biggest company in the US and it had a market capitalization of $200 billion. Now, market capitalization is a fancy word that basically means how much a company is worth. Here's how many employees they had. So fast forward to 2017, Apple is the biggest company in the country and its market cap is $800 billion. Here's how many employees it has. So that's an almost 80% decrease in the number of employees of the top company. These numbers reflect a global trend in labor. Fewer employees, greater profits. This is due to a number of trends, automation, AI, shipping jobs overseas, and the gig economy. You've all heard of the gig economy. You know, people drive for Lyft and Uber, they'll walk your dog, they'll design your resume on Upwork, um, and they will even design your logo on Fiverr. An NPR Marist poll from earlier this year showed that one in five jobs held by people in the U.S. is freelance. And independent researchers in a report for the Freelancers Union found that by 2020, 40% of the jobs held by freelancers will be without long-term contracts or benefits. This is a trend that touches every part of labor in this country, and media is not an exception. So, I don't have the power here to change the minds or the business models that determine the world that we are living and working in. But what I can do is share with you, from my perspective, what this means. So, this is Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. Oh my God, shout out to Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. (laughs) You guys are nerds. So, it's a theory from the 1940s that basically posits that you can't reach self-actualization without checking a bunch of boxes first. There's physiological, safety, love and belonging, esteem, and then self-actualization, which is where creativity, innovation, and problem-solving lie. So let's pretend that you're a freelancer. I am a freelancer, so that's not hard. You're working multiple jobs you are hustling to get that next contract signed, and you are hassling your last employer to finally pay you because you invoiced them six weeks ago. Your day-to-day life is largely consumed, right about there, in the second level. And if you're stuck in the second level, you're probably not gonna get up there. And if you do, you're probably not going to give that self-actualization to the company that you're producing a chat show for, for a $300 day rate. Just a guess, I I don't know. And to be fair, some people do make it up to the top of that pyramid while working independently. But, you know, it's not common, (laughs) I would guess. Um, So when I worked at the Washington Post a few years ago, I created a community called PayUp which was the first time Slack was used for journalism, and it created a space that gave women the tools to negotiate their salaries for the first time. Oh my gosh, thanks. More recently, when I was at BuzzFeed, I programmed a chat bot um, to take the place of show notes for our podcast and also kind of help expedite the production distribution process of the show. For both of these jobs, I had a full-time job. I had a nice salary, a 401k, good benefits, a very nice therapist, and I was working way over 40 hours a week. But talking to the hiring managers again, when you stock your newsroom with freelancers, you stock your newsroom with workers who aren't incentivized to give you more or offer creative solutions to problems. Let me be clear, I'm not saying that freelancers do the bare minimum. I'm saying that they are systemically incentivized to do exactly what you've asked of them. That's just smart. You're you're juggling multiple things. So here's my conclusion. When your business model relies solely on freelancers without benefits or job security, there is a good chance that you will fall short of the mold breaking work that you're trying to do. And if Business Week doesn't quite stir you in the same way as feelings, here's another shot written with pure idealism. Take care of your workers and they'll take care of you.
6: My name is Sam Sanders. I work for NPR. I host a show called It's Been a Minute. Yeah, thank you. A lot of you folks have been on the show, thanks for doing that. It's a twice a week podcast, once a week radio show that tries to use conversation to make sense of these crazy news cycles. (laughs) Anyway, who am I? So I host this show, whatever. Before I hosted the show, uh, for NPR, I was a campaign reporter and I worked for the politics team. Uh, In that job, I helped create the NPR Politics Podcast, I covered candidates for president, Like Bernie Sanders, no relation. Like Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump and Ted Cruz, I even covered one Jeb Bush rally. Poor Jeb. Please clap. (laughs) They did it. I didn't know if you would do it. So I can remember specifically what happened the night that Donald Trump became the GOP nominee for president. Um, I began making my morning and nightly routine this. When I woke up in the morning, the first thing I would do was check Twitter to see what he had done overnight. And I would check news alerts to see what he had done overnight. And the last thing I would do before I went to bed was check Twitter to see if he had done something else. And check news alerts to see if he had done something else. Uh, Donald Trump, literally, was the first thing I thought about every morning, the last thing I thought about every night. I realized I was in a committed relationship with Donald Trump, and I don't even think that motherfucker cared. I'm sure many of you find yourself or found yourself in the same position. I'm sure many of you still do. Raise your hand, it's okay. Thank you. All right, I was covering breaking news during that time in my life, but I was also consuming breaking news, just like millions of us and millions of our customers. Uh, We are consumers too. And I wanna talk to you tonight about changing uh, this news culture. And if we're gonna do that and change journalism, it also requires us to change the way that we ourselves interact with the news, yeah? We must change how we live every day. So, I'm gonna make one statement that I believe to be true and you have to believe me for the rest of this talk to work. Donald Trump is a chaos president. He is a chaos president. Don't clap for it. I'm saying that people that like him, like him because he's chaotic. People that hate him, hate him because he's chaotic. He's chaotic and that's a fact, right? So, in the midst of a chaotic campaign, in the midst of a chaotic presidency, It seems as if we all now live in a constant state of chaos. The chaos of Donald Trump has infused our own public discourse, and now it seems we are as chaotic and as angry as President Trump himself. You know how this goes. You know how this goes. Most of our days flow like this every two minutes or so a breaking news alert, a new tweet every three minutes, another day, another list of things to be outraged about online. You, a stranger on the internet, you are too politically correct, let's fight. You, a stranger on the internet, you are not woke enough, let's fight. Tap, tap, scroll, scroll, tap, tap, scroll, scroll, comment, 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 share. Repeat, 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 repeat. Every day, chaos. This tires us out. A Pew study from earlier this year found that almost 7 in 10 Americans feel worn out by the amount of news that there is these days, compared with only 3 in 10 who say they like the amount of news that they get these days. That is the same figure, the same ratio that we saw during uh, the course of the election in 2016. It's been two years of this shit. So a study of NPR's audience also found some pretty troubling stats. Uh, NPR consumers are 49% more likely to spend 20 to 29 hours on Twitter every week. That is ridiculous. It's ridiculous. We are not meant to live in a constant state of chaos. It is not right, it is not healthy, it is bad for us. We are not meant to be this angry all the time. So, I will tell you what I did. First, after the election, I got a new job. (laughs) I left the campaign trail and I was able to make this new show. My boss is somewhere here. Shout out Steve Nelson. Love you, man. Um, After the inauguration, I left the politics desk and I had four or five months to literally sit around with colleagues and friends and make this new show that was supposed to be of the news, but not just breaking news. My schedule became inherently more flexible. And I did this thing where I stopped checking Twitter and news alerts first thing every morning to see what he had done or said. And I stopped checking Twitter and news alerts last thing every night to see what he had said or did. I ended my one-sided relationship with Donald Trump and with Twitter and with hashtags and with internet rage. I mean, I didn't totally end them, but I think that I told these partners that I would change the relationship and perhaps say that we shouldn't see each other every day. right? I tried to end the chaos uh, and I found out something that is so true to me. It made me a better journalist. So, here's one thing that I know now that I believe to my very core, and I'm gonna say probably four or five more times before I finish this talk. If all the news is always breaking all the time, we are broken too. If all the news is always breaking all the time, we are broken too. Yeah. I did a story just after the uh, campaign ended in 2016, and I'm going to read a few of the quotes to you now, just two. I talked to Amy Mitchell. She is a, she's the director of journalism research at Pew, and she says that what we've been witnessing in news consumption trends has actually changed us physiologically. She says, you don't go online looking for news, but... Someone shares it, someone emails it to you, someone texts a link, your phone buzzes, and so Americans are, quote, bumping into the news over the course of their days. I also talked with Nikki Usher. She teaches media and uh, public affairs at GW, and she calls this recent phenomenon, quote, ambient journalism, or when you're constantly plugged in through social media and you're constantly online and engaged in some way. Constantly engaged, bumping, into the news. The news is assaulting you. It's not right. All of this assault, all of this bumping, it must stop. We must change this, particularly as journalists. We have been so concerned with keeping our audiences as informed as possible that we have forgotten to care about their sanity. We have convinced ourselves that we must move at the same breakneck speed as our president. The Washington Post released a study in May of 2017 and it found that 12 major national newsrooms, each of them sent an average of 44 news alerts every day. Forty-fucking-four! That's crazy. That's crazy. When I see stats like that, I say to myself, we have stopped being a public service and we've become a public nuisance. Our challenge in the coming years is to fight this urge to move as quickly as our current president, to attempt to cover the world and our politics in a way that does not give our consumers a panic attack. What if, when the news speeds up, we fight the urge to run as fast as we can to the point of insanity? Yes, cover the news, but spend more time thoughtfully covering how we got here, not just who said that and then who said this, and on and on and on. Here is my provocation to you all. What if the thing we need to do most right now is slow the hell down? To fight that urge for incessant alarming speed, to show restraint and calm and deliberation when those that make news would have us do anything but. I will say it again, one more time. If all the news is always breaking, all the time, we are broken too. We must unbreak our news cycles and unbreak ourselves. Thank you.
7: Hi, I'm Stan Alcorn. I'm a reporter and producer at Reveal. And I'm just going to say from the beginning that I took my duty to provoke very seriously. I have a problem with stories. Specifically, stories that look like this. Not like that. Like that. Um, you, You know these stories. A character has a need, he takes action, surmounts obstacles and returns having changed. Kind of the foundational story, the hero's journey, and myth, and screenplays, and so much of the narrative radio storytelling that we all know and love. But you also see miniature versions of it on late night TV.
6: I'm a big guy. Well, I have hemorrhoids. My secret bidet is perfect. It's cooling, refreshing, cleans better than anything else ever has, and it makes me feel amazing. Next thing, it doesn't get me troubled anymore.
7: I had to stop the video there, because it gets much worse, believe it or not. Um, But you could use any infomercial testimonial for this, just so you can help visualize it here. You've got your character, James. He has a motivation, hemorrhoids, and so he acts. He buys the secret bidet, and his life has changed. He can enjoy Mexican food. But my point is not just that stories uh, can be used to sell toilet accessories. Uh, The point is how they do that. The story is making an argument. The product works, buy this product, but it does it without actually coming out and saying it. The facts of the story may actually be true, but the evidence for the argument is not presented. It's relying on that feeling of inevitability that comes from telling a story, where one thing happens and then another thing happens. So the second thing must have happened because of the first thing the way that we see one person's journey and we automatically generalize it. You know, if it worked for this guy. And this is why if you ask a scientist or a researcher or someone who's trying to nail down complicated truths about the world, they're often not so keen on the one person's story, right? It's an anecdote. The etymology of that word is actually, literally, anecdota is not published, as in not worth publishing. And I've come to think that there are arguments like this lurking under the surface of every anecdote, arguments about the way that the world works. And if we're not careful, even if it's a really good story and the facts are right, we can still end up selling our listeners a vision of the world that is basically some infomercial, snake oil bullshit. So at Reveal, where I work, we primarily do investigative reporting, which I think of as getting to the bottom of problems. And I'm constantly torn between, you know, how complicated these problems are and how seductively simple the one-person story is. And don't get me wrong, we use the journey of a single character all the time. Um, For instance, this is what we call a story map, and I don't expect you to be able to read the post-its, but if you see that first bump, uh, that's uh, that's the first arc of this story, uh, this investigation into people being injured and killed, uh, building ships on the Gulf Coast. And that first bump is the dramatic story of a young man from a shipbuilding family named Bram Aids, who is badly burned in a negligent shipyard. And his story, I think, helps get across why you should care about this issue. People like him, they they are the reason to care. Uh, But the one-person story, it does a pretty shitty job of explaining why these things actually happen. In fact, if you try to uh, use one person to tell that story, if we say, oh, it all goes back to uh, this one guy, this OSHA inspector, it goes back to this one person, it might feel narratively satisfying, but you're at a very high risk of turning people into infomercial testimonials where you're asking their stories to make an argument that the story can't support on its own. And in the process, you're giving your listeners a view of the world where everything is the way it is, because of the action of a handful of individuals. History becomes this relay race where ideas are passed like batons from one great talker to another. Now, maybe one way to avoid this is to steer clear of using stories to make a point. Just tell a compelling story, one compelling uh, personal story at a time. But I don't think that's enough because that's not how listeners hear our stories. They're going to hear your story, along with the story of the producer next to you, and the producer next to them. And all these stories fit together to make a picture of the world, and it's a picture that we know is warped. To pick one obvious way, there's way too many people like me in it, white, male, college educated, likes to talk into microphones. Um, But it's also warped by the search for stories itself, for always looking for the most exceptional, the most outrageous, the strangest stories. We give our listeners a vision of the world at its weirdest, at its most outrageous. Or here's a little multiple choice quiz, a little audience participation. There are going to be four choices. Uh, So, what proportion of people in state prisons are there for nonviolent drug offenses? Raise your hand if you think it's 15%, 30%, 50%. 75%, 75%, the answer is actually 15%. The majority of people in state prisons are there for committing violent crimes. And I'm not blaming podcasts for the fact that most people don't realize this fact. <laughs> but I am blaming the way that we we broadly, people who tell, tell stories about the criminal justice system, uh, have a tendency to try to tell the stories of people who we deem to be the most sympathetic characters. Okay, so we're now at this point in my talk. So I'm gonna say, (laughs) whatever I say next should sound really like it's wrapping it all up and all the complications have been dealt with. But seriously, I do have a couple of suggestions. Uh, One of them is don't just fact check your story, fact check the argument that your story is making. And if you think your story doesn't have an argument, play it for people who have a different perspective than you do, different background, and ask them what they take away from the story and take their answers seriously. Another suggestion, when you feel the pull of that hero's journey, you're working on a story, and, God, it would be so much easier just to tell this one-person story, try to pull in another direction. You know, Draw different story shapes, steal from other media that you've seen uh, capture the complexity of the world in a way that you find compelling, and remind yourself that just because a story feels good, that doesn't mean it's doing a good job of conveying reality. And if you're thinking as you listen to this, well, I'm not a journalist, this doesn't apply to me, I would just say that when listeners hear your stories coming out of their earbuds, they don't know whether or not you identify as a journalist. I mean, let's be real, they think all of us work at NPR. (laughs) And as long as you are telling true stories about the real world, There are two possibilities. Either listeners will believe you and will believe the arguments that your stories make about the world. Or they won't. And they'll learn to distrust not just you, but all of us. Thank you.
8: Are you a true crime junkie who just can't wait for their favorite podcast each week? Ever wonder what it's like to be part of a real true crime investigation? Well, wonder no more. Acquittal is the new game that brings all the excitement of being charged with murder right to your door. Sign up today and local police will be at your home in minutes to arrest you for a crime you didn't commit. Trace back your every step as you attempt to prove your innocence. Pour through thousands of pages of discovery and piece together clues that could clear your name. Even choose your own trial lawyer. Just don't get caught without an alibi. For just $30 a month plus impending legal fees, you can immerse yourself in this high-stakes game of wrongful convictions. Don't have time for a full trial? Download the app and try the new plea bargain mode. It's great for your morning commute. So what are you waiting for? Sign up for acquittal and implicate yourself today.
1: Hi, I'm Aliyah Pavani, and I'm here to talk about... Why narrative podcasts aren't funny. Okay, maybe that's not entirely true. Sometimes there's a joke in the credits. You know, the part where you pull back the curtain and show us that even though you're a very serious reporter, you also like to have a little fun.
9: Join us next week for more in... A- what? I'm the in-between part is a joke. I'm the in...
8: Uh, <laughs> that's saw you end a bear show, right there. <laughs> <So that's, laughs> Every bear show ends in a sex museum, I think. I, I told Tori, sunscreen! Sunscreen! My son. His skin took
7: three months to gradually, gradually return back to its color. Am I Okay,
1: um... <laughs> The credits have become a place for the hosts to actually express their personality. And I think it's also a space to release the leftover tension from the story. In some narrative work, there are traces of self-deprecation. And here and there, there are some hosts drawing from the humorous tradition. But it's the kind of humor that gets in, ah, I see what you did there. It's something that you observe more than something that you actually feel. And the reason is simple. Reporters aren't funny. (laughs) Okay, it's not that there aren't reporters who are funny in the field. It's just that as reporters, you're trained to stand between yourself and the story. Comedy requires a vantage point, but if you want to be taken seriously as a reporter, you're supposed to present the facts as neutrally as possible. And I get that stories about life sentences and mourning families aren't the most appropriate spaces for jokes. But the thing is, and I'm not saying anything new here, that neutral voice isn't neutral for everyone. The separation between what's considered serious and what's considered funny is not universal. It's cultural. For systemically disadvantaged communities who are constantly grappling with trauma, that separation can be harder to maintain. Humor becomes a kind of lubricant for dealing with the seriousness of life. So, when a person telling the story sounds like they're holding it with latex gloves on, it can be pretty alienating. And beyond potentially alienating listeners, our different perspectives on this issue can even cause problems when we're actually doing this work. I found a clip that I think illustrates this. In an interview with Rob Rosenthal for Transom, Chandrai Kumanyika talks about his reaction to a scene from Uncivil. And I believe Chandrai might be here. (laughs) I'm sorry. Uh, In this scene, enslaved people are escaping from a burning plantation, and Chandrai's response to it seemed to split the room.
10: The Negroes, men and women, were rushing to the boat with their children. Now, I remember when we were reading that, there was a part where I think Jack says something like, you know, explains that somebody gave the order to burn it down. And I just was like, yeah that was kind of like a hip hop. Yeah. I was like, yeah, you know? And I remember in the studio, there was a conversation. Folks weren't sure if I should do that. You know, they were like, Oh, I don't know Chinch. And actually I did it. I did it. Like, I think there was, as it was happening, I think I said it three times. I was like, yeah, yeah. You know, because to me, I'm in a, at that moment I'm in a room with black people or with white people who don't like slavery <laughs> And we're watching a plantation burn and, you know, it's kind of cathartic. And I'm going to be like, yeah, you know, just to imagine it. And to, and we're also feeling the power of that narrative that was missing, that that narrative of agency, that people just didn't take slavery. They fought back against it. And so it's like, yeah, you know. and But, you know, there was this uncomfortability in the room that some people felt like, well, that was too much, you know. That was too interested or too partisan or something. And I'm like to burn down, to celebrate about a plantation burning down during slavery is too much. (laughs) I'm not oriented toward that audience. You know, I'm like any audience member who's going to get pissed about that, you know, that's, they got to catch up.
1: (laughs) So what do you do if you don't have that connection to the story? If you don't have that comfort, comfort level, show us your discomfort. Give us the clumsy questions that got you chewed out by your source. Or your colleague. Don't cut that moment where you caught yourself laughing out of shock. If you aren't the right person to make the joke, be the joke. Don't let the listener walk away thinking that you came to a tough story with very little personal experience and somehow walked away completely unscathed. And the reason I think all of this is important is that Your polished, impartial voice can give listeners the sense that communicating across difference is much easier than it actually is. But it's not easy. It's a process. It's messy and it's nuanced. So give us the truth. That's usually where the funniest stuff comes from anyway. Thank
2: you. Hey there, we're going to take a quick break. Wait, wait! can we do it? Can we do it? Sure.
3: Hey there, I'm Third Coast senior
4: producer Isabel. I'm amazing. I'm also senior producer Isabel. We're going to take a quick break. But we'll be back with the rest of Provocations in just a minute.
3: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.
4: Welcome back. Now for our two re-recorded Provocations. First, you'll hear from Jeannie Andell and Eula Scott Bino, the two incredible dynamic hosts of Battle Tactics for Your Sexist Workplace from KUOW. And then you'll hear the poetry of Stacia Brown, an independent producer based in Baltimore.
3: And after that, we'll take you back to the night of Provocations for a glorious finale by the one and only former Nickelodeon employee Lou
0: Okowski.
11: Hi, I'm Jeannie Yandel.
0: And I'm Eula scott Vino. Hey, everybody. <laughs> and we're co-hosts of KUOW's Battle Tactics for Your Sexist Workplace. I'm hoping you're applauding. So, Eula, you're not at Third Coast. Why not? So I'm seeing a concert tonight, you guys. You won't, you know what concert it is. It's Beyonce and Jay-Z. It's the only thing that would keep me away from everyone. So I already had a ticket, and this was their last performance. So I feel like I had to make it to that because I really... N- I really, really needed to see black love right now, you know, which is crazy because I really, really want a successful career in public radio. I would love to be the black Paula Poundstone. I mean, please, I hope these jokes are hitting
11: the black Paula Poundstone. So it took courage for Eula to push back on the idea I was pushing on her, which is that the most important thing is a work conference in Chicago. She disagreed and told me, no, actually, what's most important is Beyonce in Seattle.
0: I mean, you say Beyonce, but Jay-Z's going to be there too, right? <laughs> I'm sorry. Why does everyone keep forgetting he's going to be there? He's her husband for a reason, you guys. I mean, she's had an easier time staying with him than she did with Latoya and Latavia. Those are the other
11: original members of Destiny's Child, by the way, in case <laughs> you did not know that. <laughs> but this actually has a connection to our provocation, which is this. When someone tells you you need to balance your story by getting the other side pushback. We all know this traditional idea about balance, yes? That you must have someone on one side of an issue, and then someone on the opposite side, and then voila, balance. As though every piece we make is a seesaw. But unlike with seesaws, and I have a six-year-old, I go to a lot of playgrounds, I feel like I am an expert on seesaws, that technique doesn't actually get you real balance. It just sort of leads you to make really myopic work. Let me give you an example. So 12 years ago, I was a producer on a daily news call-in show. And whenever we talked about climate change, we talked about making sure there was balance. Balance. So what do you think that balance looked like? It looked like someone on our team suggesting we book a climate change scientist and a climate change denier to represent the other side. Now, I can remember feeling a lurch in my gut every time that suggestion was made. But I didn't say anything. Instead, I booked the climate change denier to provide balance to the scientist. Twelve years on, I know exactly why I felt that lurch. Because I knew presenting a fact-based argument on equal ground with a devil's advocate argument is not balance. But back then, I was too scared to speak up. I didn't want to rock the boat. We had a deadline to hit. I was afraid I'd sound stupid. All of these reasons. All I'm left with now is regret. I deeply, deeply regret not speaking up back then. And I think about that often, as Eula and I work on Battle Tactics for Your Sexist Workplace, where we do not sweat having a discussion about workplace sexism with balance from
0: voices on the other side. We start every show telling people their workplace is sexist, because it's true. Because we've got the data, we've got the tears, and we've got the courage to call it out, you guys. Shit, if they didn't let me call it out, I surely wouldn't be spending so much time away from my son. He is one years old. He is so damn cute. He is really cute.
11: I'm sorry if you missed the live provocation because I had a little video of him. Oh, man. But anyway. With BTSW, we draw a conclusion from the data and research Eula mentioned, which is this. It's more accurate to say every workplace is sexist than it is to say there are just a few bad places out there. And that is certainly more useful than pretending sexism or any kind of inequity is something we need to debate the existence of again and again. But there are other ways to try and create some kind of balance, which I think many times is a shortcut or inelegant way of saying multiple perspectives or tension beyond this one side, other side seesaw kind of thing. For example, on the show, we're open about the fact that I am a longtime public radio employee. And sometimes I have, shall we say, a rich tapestry of feelings when I talk about my own experiences with sexism at work on the podcast I make it work for my job. Eula, you do not have the same hang ups I do about talking about your experiences on the job.
0: I would say the reason why I don't have a lot of hang ups is because I don't feel connected to any job more than I could feel connected to my mission in life. You know, I really know what I want to accomplish and I want to make this world a better place. And I haven't ever had an employer that had that same concept. So I've just always gone to work for money. And here's the thing. There are plenty of places that will pay you. I'm willing to work at McDonald's. I am.
11: Partly from working with EULA, I now understand something really important about the lurch I feel in my gut when someone tells me our show isn't balanced or we're not getting the other side or we're not debating the issue. It's this. That lurch is a gift. It's a muscle begging to be developed and strengthened. And I don't know how you make work in any meaningful way if you don't strengthen that muscle and use it to guide you as you make stuff. I'm thrilled and frankly relieved that there are so many people at Third Coast this year who are already developing that muscle, that so many of you already listen to that lurch in your gut and use it to make your work better and more multifaceted and reflective of this deeply weird reality we're all in. Please, please keep doing it. And if you are an editor or a manager and you're telling someone they need more balance, please be specific about what you mean. Do you mean more varied perspectives? Do you mean tension? Great, then say that. And when you hear a colleague or someone you edit, pushing back, giving words to that lurch in their gut, challenging those conventional seesaw ideas about balance, pay attention to what they're saying, listen especially if the ideas they're challenging are yours.
0: Sorry I'm not there, you guys. Are you really? You're right. I ain't sorry. I'm going to this concert. It's going to be so good. Let's go, Jay. (laughs) (laughs) Let's go, B. Thank you very much.
12: Good evening. I'm here to talk to you about quilting, audio quilting, and how once you've woven all your intimate sound elements into a quilt you've made with one person in mind, you can carefully fold it away for that person who'll most benefit from receiving it.
5: Good listening. Great job.
12: My daughter was three when we found out that she'd been experiencing the world with impaired hearing. Likely from the time she was born, or from early infancy,
2: no one is sure.
12: I first took her to an audiologist because she was slow to speak. We learned that her language skills were delayed. She was tested, and over the years, the diagnosis has been inconsistent.
3: Yep, you got it.
12: More often than not, her results indicate mild to moderate hearing loss in both ears.
5: S, what's it? T. T, O, R, Y, Dory.
12: Good job. B, R,
5: O, W, N, Brown. brown
12: What's that word? Story. Story. Brown. Brown. Yay.
11: Yay. Yay. Yay.
5: Mommy, are you happy?
12: The prognosis has been consistent. Her hearing loss is not progressive, but it is permanent.
7: Happy New Year, New Year, Happy, Happy New Year. Happy
0: Happy 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 New Year.
12: You know what year it is? Nope. 2018. (laughs) What? Say that. That's all you? Yeah, can you say that? 2018. 2018. 2018. 2018. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. You know how old you're going to be this year? Nope. Story, my daughter, is eight now. To this day, her hearing loss impacts her speech. But it took me a while, far longer than it should have to realize that impediments of hearing and speech are not impediments of understanding. Story. Yes? Can you hear my heart? Yeah. What does it sound like? Bum-bum, bum Boom! bum Boom! bum Boom! Can you do that again? Bum-bum, Boom! 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 boom boom cool that's cool when I found out I was pregnant I told Story's dad who had been seeing for what felt like forever eight years and we broke up within days nothing looked familiar to me anymore and the foundation of my world felt like it was crumbling I didn't want my daughter to be born into my crumbling world So I started writing her a new one, essays in the second person explaining to her what was happening in this wide world awaiting her. For the past two years, I've been turning a few of those essays into audio pieces for a project I call Hope Chest. Hope Chest is a time capsule, a space to tuck away what's happening now for some later date when I'm certain I'll have to answer to my daughter, as all parents do, for how she is being raised. Both my voice and stories are captured inside each episode, and because the content I write to story is often mature, we will only crack them open together when she's old enough to hear and to understand them. Even now I wonder, is it better that he wasn't there? Better for the breaking open of my body not to be witnessed by someone who had not lawfully claimed it. Better to have had those earliest moments with you alone, Or would being there have made him reconsider living cross-country for three more years? Would it have made me reconsider the length of time it would take me to forgive him? Absence howls, and absence aches. It casts the longest shadow. Absences you aren't expecting may be the most jarring, but even the ones you brace for can be brutal. And those whose effect you hide behind a cloak of single-woman bravado still splinter your heart for years thereafter long after the absent one returns. If you could create an audio project that would explain the most confounding of your personal choices to someone who those choices will impact forever, how would you do it? That's the question that guides a podcast you make for one person. Maybe there's an experience you fumbled and have longed to reinvent. Maybe there's someone for whom you want to create the healthiest possible narrative of home, of family, of love. As makers of audio, it's quite easy for us to accomplish this. We can achieve it through our own distinct blend of intimacy and honesty. And when it is time, we can offer it to the person who most deserves to hear it. The audio you make for an audience of one is personal, but not necessarily private. Your purpose is clear and it's quiet. But often when you set out to make something with such laser-like focus, it resonates with others. I write Hope Chest for story. I share it for other parents. I share it for the adult children of parents who had no idea what they were doing as parents and never really found the words to articulate that to their kids. Hope Chest isn't for everyone. And as such, it isn't meant to be packaged or promoted or commercialized like anything else I'm making but it is for someone. It's for whoever would open our time capsule long after we've moved on and derive some sort of meaning about who we once were and hopefully about who they are. Making this kind of project isn't just for parents and kids. It isn't just for lovers. It's for anyone who has something very specific they want to express to someone in the future, the present, or the past. Someone who wants to be deliberate about how their message is expressed and delivered. Someone who wants to be able to repackage a small piece of their world. That may be you. If so, tonight, I encourage you to lay yourself bare. Recreate what you've lost. Seize the opportunity to become better for someone who needs you to be better. Or for someone, like my daughter, who already believes that you are. Thank you.
9: I'm Lou, and I just wanted to say something to Alex, you know, I've been an independent producer since 2001, never intended to be freelance ever, 2001 to 2018, so just be careful. You know, before I worked in radio and now podcasting, I was a creative director at Nickelodeon, And, um, you know, when I started there, it felt a lot like podcasting does now. We were a growing industry, but we still felt like scrappy upstarts, like we wanted to change how things were done and reinvent them. We were idealistic and a little subversive and kind of weird. We wanted to challenge the big networks, but we wanted to really do it with heart. We wanted to have fun, and we wanted to stay true to ourselves. And you know, that kind of energy will always be infectious. And we grew, and we became a monster. We were huge. (laughs) And there were definite perks, like, you know, health insurance without being asked. Um, A sweet bonus every February. But we lost some things, too. Um, The idealism faded. Our chances to be subversive grew fewer and fewer. And we were making, like, way too much stuff. And a lot of it sucked. I was tired of working six days a week, tired of being there to watch the sun set and the stars come out from a cubicle. And I kept wondering, like, why am I here and not kayaking around the Statue of Liberty with my friends? Like, why am I in this evil-looking building at 11 o'clock on a Monday night? Um, And it crystallized for me late one night while I was screening Rugrats episodes. (laughs) See, that's my man, that's Reptar. And I don't know if you guys know Nickelodeon. He is a TV character inside a TV show. And he's a monster. Um, Shows about a bunch of babies. The babies love him. And they have toys of him. And he's adored. But when I saw him, like, rip apart that building, like, that was the building I was sitting in on the 21st floor, right where he grabs it, I was in it. And it helped me recognize a couple of things. One... I had a little bit of rage. Um, And two, it told me that I was not alone because there was at least one other person um, who felt the way that I did. And it was the animator who drew that. And it was the executive who let it happen, so there were two. Um, And so I look at our podcast community now with so many of us feeling tired and a little burnt out. And I think there are some lessons I learned from Reptar that are worth revisiting. The first is to trust your gut. Reptar's gut told him to follow his heart and join the ice capades. (laughs) My gut told me to leave Nickelodeon and come into public radio. Um, Right now, my gut is telling me we are spreading ourselves way too thin. Um, And I'm going to come back to that, but I've got more to say before I get there. These are going to be my little lessons. Next. For especially those of you starting out, be careful who you listen to. When Maya and Emily first asked me to say something, they, you know, gave me some questions to think about. And one of them was, what advice would you give your younger self? And I thought a lot about how I struggled when I was starting out, and still do. And I realized, like, a lot of the advice doesn't exactly hold up anymore. Um, I'm going to just test the age of people in the room. Um, One of the big pieces of advice when I was starting out was, go to Alaska. (laughs) Is that still advice? (laughs) everyone's told to go to alaska no one's told why i hope there's a really good editor there somewhere but are they in Nome or fairbanks i have no idea um then there was um you know kind of more personal advice that was well you know that's great but lou could you try to sound a little more authoritative Um, A good friend of mine, um, she was told by her editor, you know, when you go out recording, you should wear a Renaissance dress and meet the guy in the burial ground at midnight. I mean, that's really gonna get him to talk. Um, So all of this to say, take the advice with a grain of salt. And some of it will sound ridiculous right up front, but you know, a lot of it is gonna sound really compelling some really famous people might accidentally make you feel that like their way is the only way and that is not true there is no one way to do anything and that is no one way to write a piece to score and sound design a piece to edit a piece to find a job to keep your sanity to make enough money to pay the rent There is no one way to structure a deal. Do not let them tell you this is their boilerplate. And there is no one way to launch a show. Um, So soak up the advice. A lot of it is good. But think really closely um, about where it's coming from. And if that's just a place you want to go. Because you may. And you may not. Next, Maya and Emily also asked me, what is the worst advice you were ever given? And I will say the single um, most horrible piece of advice I ever heard that I did not take was copy your heroes. Don't do that. Just don't do that ever don't copy your heroes. Um, back when I was starting out in the in the like old timey days now, I guess, I don't know. There were very few jobs, there were hardly any. And it made sense. It made sense to adopt the voice and the style and the taste of that radio person you idolized. Um, and the hope was that if you could do it, they would see that you were like them and you would get a job on their show. Um, most likely his show. And the thing is, You don't need to do that anymore. I really believe that. We need all of you to sound like you and find new ways of telling stories. There are a whole bunch of super successful radio makers. Um, I could name names. I'm not gonna do it, because, you know, too dangerous. But they are people I admire, and in a lot of cases, I just adore them personally, but I just don't think you or I should sound like them. That's hard, though, not copying your heroes. It's really hard and it takes some work so this is my next bit of advice go
3: to therapy
9: now i'm going to preface this that i know i know you got to find one you got to find one who can hear you and you also have to um be able to afford it i know it's a pain in the ass there is sliding scale you gotta it's it's possible um i am a big believer in therapy I think not only will it help you deal with, like, daily life and the ups and downs and working in this batshit crazy business, but it will make you a better interviewer. I 100% believe that. (laughs) The most very basic thing therapy does is it helps you feel more comfortable in your own skin. And you know what? That's going to come in handy if you're interviewing someone who's really powerful or really famous or rich or just not like you. And if you can see that person is just another person, you're going to get something good out of the experience. And that's going to be good tape, of which we are in short supply people. Um, plus, in therapy, you spend a lot of time kind of parsing people's motivation, like, why did she do that? And like, why did I do that? Um, and sometimes it's like, you know, your, your boyfriend or your best friend or your mother, for me, a lot of time my mother, <laughs> Um, but, you know, therapy will help you embrace those most vulnerable parts of yourself, and those are the parts that are going to make you a great listener. And embracing yourself is also going to help you to sound like yourself, so you're not sounding like another radio person out there, because there's no need. Um, Therapy is also going to make you feel more comfortable being in the presence of really strong and difficult emotions, um, both your own and someone else's. Um, and it's gonna make it easier to sit with like long, awkward silences. (laughs) You're gonna start to develop a sixth sense about what those silences might actually mean. And it's gonna lead to better questions. And your subject is probably gonna be more seen. Uh, or more challenged, and all of that's going to make better audio. This is my next message. Make less. When I started in this universe, there was this belief that you could make something, and if you were true to yourself and you were true to your subject, you were going to find your audience. I don't know what happened to that. Um, I treasured that. The idea of finding your audience over time without too much pressure of ratings or ad sales or being faithful to a brand identity or like a five-year plan. Um, It was a rare gift we had and I think we kind of need to claw it back. Um, Good work takes time um, and a little piece of your heart and soul. Um, As my friend Rikke Houd, this wonderful Danish radio maker says, You can't squeeze it out of a tube. Um, We heard some really great work this year. We did. There's stuff I love tremendously, and I have just advocated with my loudest self. Um, But a lot of podcasts have started to sound thin. The audio is less good, less sparkly. There are fewer surprises. Um... And I'm sorry to say that. I feel like at Third Coast I shouldn't say that, but I hear people talking about it. I hear people saying, did you hear that? I, I wanted, I love it, and then I didn't. Um, and I think we just need to make a little less. I think um, focus on it, and make it shine. Every podcast does not have to be weekly or bi-weekly. Hello, seasons, like. And I just want to take note that truly, the best work this year had the benefit they did of great resources, of time and money. And so managers, fund the shit you want. Um, Like, why do do you think we're making so much? Like, I don't know, I asked a couple friends, and my friend Sophie Townsend, who's here from Australia giving a talk, who you should see because she's beautiful, Um, thinks it comes from a sense of existential anxiety. (laughs) Um, I make, therefore I am. Uh, Eleanor McDowell from Falling Tree Productions in the UK said to me, it's an anxious age where you're so aware of how much is being made constantly. And there's this fear that if you stop making noise for a second, you might just disappear in the hubbub of it all. I was really happy to see several producers change it up in the last year. Um, they were mainly women, by the way. Um, producers with successful podcasts who said, I can't sustain this. It, it doesn't benefit the work, and it doesn't benefit my life. Um, one took a job on a series. One went on to host a new show at a company where she'd get more support. Turns out being a one-man band is not that all it's cracked up to be. Um, one decided to move to a seasonal format, and a couple of others have taken hiatus. Um, each, in their own way, decided that making less is better, and I hope they can be your inspiration, because they're still kicking ass. Last but not least, find your people. The most important thing about seeing Reptar rip up that Viacom building is that it reminded me that I wasn't alone, and it pointed me towards some new friends. You need your group of friends. You might collaborate, um, but maybe not. They will become your sounding board. Um, They will read your pitches, probably a lot of drafts, and um, a lot of drafts of early mixes. (laughs) They're going to help you strategize how to handle a difficult personality or a crappy contract. I know those exist. You know, let's not fool around. Um, Sometimes you can band together and change things. Maybe you get the interns paid. Is Mickey Capper here? Shout out to Mickey Capper, starting that in New York. Um, Or maybe you get the per diems into the union. Or maybe you confront a bad boss. Um, The thing is, the corporation is never going to take care of you. Companies will come and go. Departments will be shuttered. Leadership will change, sometimes quite suddenly. Pretty much all that's left is us right here in this room, the people who love to make it. We're what's left at the end of the day. None of them will be. They're, they're going to do something else. Um, so take care of each other.
2: Thanks for listening to Late Night Provocations. A huge shout-out of appreciation to this year's provocateurs. And a special thanks to Ryan Natoli of The Onion, who created the satirical ad for acquittal.
3: Thank you guys so much. Thank you. Another round of applause for all the provocateurs.
2: Another big thanks to Third Coast's own Emily Kennedy and Maya Goldberg-Safer, who produced Late Night Provocations and joined us on the Pocket Conference. You can find a full transcript of each episode of the Third Coast Pocket Conference thanks to Descript by visiting our website or by clicking on the link in the show notes. If you haven't already signed up for producer news, go to thirdcoastfestival.org and click on the newsletter button at the bottom of the page. We have weekly updates, resources, and more. You really won't want to miss these. The Third Coast Pocket Conference is produced by me, Isabel Vasquez. The executive director of Third Coast is Johanna Zorn, and Third Coast is also Maya Goldberg-Safer, Emily Kennedy, Gwen Maxi, and Rebecca Silverman. We'll be back next week with another session from the 2018 Third Coast Conference, but in the meantime, you can always check out the extensive library of audio stories on our website or download our other podcast, Resound. Thanks for listening.